Hello and welcome back to QC Uncut, your source for uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers. It's the number one rated podcast in the Quad Cities. We get tons of listeners because you, the audience, want to hear about these people's stories. And they're always fascinating. No matter who we talk to, whether it's politicians or artists or authors, they've always got some interesting stories to tell. And my guest today does as well. It is local author and podcaster William Pepper. We are here in the midst of the very teeming and populous Cool Beans in Rock Island. And we're going to be talking about some of the things William's got going on. He's got a couple podcasts going on on our website. But in addition to that, he has written a number of books and um, has also got a lot of other cool creative projects going on. So, William, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you, Sean. I'm happy to be here. Let's get started with how you got started as an author, uh, as a creator. What was it, you know, when you first were a kid, what enchanted you about writing, about creating? What made you decide, you know, this is kind of what I want to be? Um, at first, it was just something I did. I, I was a fourth grader who sat in the basement with mom's portable typewriter banging out Encyclopedia Brown ripoffs. <laughs> um, it, it's what I just did, uh, and I didn't really think much about it. And then probably around seventh grade, I was thinking about this on the way over today, trying to figure out. I know seventh grade, I wrote a story, and I wish I don't even remember the story, but I wish uh, I wish I did. And uh, for, it was a class project, and uh, the teacher picked Syllabus the, Jones. What's that? Syllabus Jones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so we, we all do, had to write these stories, and he picked out a few to read to the class, and and uh, I feel bad that I don't remember the story, but he picked mine to read, and it got a good reaction. I remember it must have been funny because people laughed, and they were supposed to laugh. And something clicked, and I thought, yeah, I've always written for me, but maybe this is something I could do that other people would like. And I just kept writing after that. Yeah, so. Who are some of the writers that enchanted you and inspired you as a writer growing up? Um... The first name that comes to mind is Charles Schultz. He's a cartoonist, I, I realize. Uh, I like but also a writer as well. Writer as well. I liked him. Um, I read, uh, honestly, I read Agatha Christie novels. Uh, I was really big on the Agatha Christie novels, anything like that. Um, I didn't have, you know, when I was really young, I read all the uh, Ramona and Beezus books, Beverly Cleary books, and all of that, and uh, just just a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. What was it about those particular authors that drew you to them, that inspired you, and how can you see that um, those beginning, you know, inklings of loving literature in your own work? I don't know what drew me to them. Uh, character, I suppose. I, I, I responded to the characters. Um, I, I felt like I knew the, the people in the story. I felt like I related to them. Um, and I guess what I took from, from the things I read is um, uh, write characters that, that I like. So usually what I write are, are things with characters that I relate to somehow. I understand them. They may be people totally different than me. But, but I connect with them somehow. I suppose that's what I took away. 
That's one thing I have noticed about your writing, and it is very character-driven. Um, and you know, are you? How did you create your own your characters? Are they based sometimes on spinoffs from people that you've known, composites of people that you know, um, or are they created whole cloth from your own imagination? I don't. I don't think I've intentionally ever modeled a character on a particular person. I might take traits from different people. I think that's normal. That uh, your writer, you watch people a lot. You think about how they talk, how they move, what they act like. Uh, I do that. Um, so, so no, I probably don't model them on particular people. I probably just write them whole cloth, like you said. Uh, I need a character to do X. Who is that character? And then I make him up. Who are some of your favorite characters you've created, and also who are some of your favorite fictional characters just in general, and why? Um, a character that jumps out to, for me that I created was actually from my first uh, self-published book, uh, In the Saint Nick of Time. I, there was a character in there named Dogwater Hunt, who is a conspiracy theorist, uh, multiple alien abductee. Uh, he is, it's, the book is set at Christmas time, and he's terrified of Christmas lights. Uh, he's just a really, he's a fun character. He's, he's one of the supporting players in the book, but he's kind of the breakout, standout character. Uh, and I would like to do more with him someday, and I probably will. Um, characters that I like, um, uh, you know, the Harry Potter books, I like those characters. Um, uh, you know, I mentioned Agatha Christie earlier. I like uh, Miss Marple. I like uh, Hercule Poirot. Um, you know, I was a nerdy kid. That's the kind of books that I read. Uh, those kind of characters jump out at me at the moment. That doesn't surprise me because having read your work, um, you do, and I, we've talked about this because you had me read, read the last book that you wrote, and um, it had, and as I mentioned to you, it has a very Spielbergian feel to it, which is not something that a lot of contemporary authors want to create characters that are very in your face. They're very opinionated. They're very arch, and they have a a very I don't know. I don't want to say narcissistic quality, but that doesn't necessarily not describe them. Like, I mean, they're basically like so many books I read nowadays. It's like, hey, here's Holden Caulfield times a thousand. You know, I'm gonna get like even more Holden Caulfield deal than Holden Caulfield. Um, your books are not like that. Your, you know, your characters are very different, and and I think that that's cool that you have your own distinct voice and way of crafting a universe. And so it's interesting to me that the books that you have liked and grown up liking have that class feel and you and you like Agatha Christie in particular the characters are reactive to the plot they're not characters that enforce themselves on the plot necessarily they're very clear characters but they also fit into their own worlds which are being created around them what is it about that that appeals to you uh, I guess I don't know. I suppose if I start psychoanalyzing myself, <laughs> probably what's going on there is uh, I. Well, maybe. Yeah. Tell me about your relationship growing up, William. <laughs> I hated my mother, and uh, you know, um, I, just for the record, my mom's great. Um, I, maybe I'm narcissistic. I guess someone else could tell me that, but I'm not. By nature, I'm not an in-your-face. Uh, kind of character, and maybe subconsciously I, I resist writing those characters. I think I would if I had a story that needed a character like that, and I, and I can't think of one now, but I probably have written a character like that. Um, but I suppose as, because I'm not that kind of person, I'm not 
I'm not drawn to that kind of person. Maybe some people are quiet and reserved, so they read books about serial killers. Um, I don't necessarily do that. Maybe, uh, maybe I, I like books that are with people who have similar traits to me, and, and maybe I also write characters like that. I don't really know, I guess. So, um, what, um, what elements from those mystery novels, from those Agatha Christie novels and such, do you see paralleled in the works that, that you've done? Obviously, like the overt, not the overt mystery side of it, but what certain elements do you see, you know, within your own work? I think that—that's a good question. I think clarity, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, like I said, it's not about a mystery thing, but about um, clearly defined characters, clearly defined goals, I suppose. And a, a clean finish, maybe. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I, I guess that's what comes to mind. Well, and it's interesting. You mentioned Harry Potter, too, as a contemporary, because Harry Potter is kind of like that, too. <laughs> Harry Potter is a very clearly defined character, a very sympathetic character, but also has that kind of wonder, that sense of wonder to it. I guess that's what I see in your work a lot of times. Is We were talking before the pot we started recording about how, you know, the project that you had had me read, it kind of like Stranger Things. And it's not like Stranger Things, like, oh, it's the exact same type of thing. No, but the, the tone, like Stranger Things, the tone is very, it's very 80s. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in, like, the fact that, because Harry Potter is very 80s, too, when you look at it. The way Harry Potter is constructed, it is a character, a fully-fledged character, but it's he's within a world, and there's a sense of wonder and optimism and magnificence to that. It's devoid of the kind of cynicism that you sometimes see. While there is darkness within it, it's ultimately has ultimately optimistic in its slant. And I kind of see that in your work too. Why, you know, again, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you here, William, but you know, what is what is it? Is that something cuz I know myself when I'm writing, I tend to write and I and people have asked me that. It's like a lot of your stuff is very optimistic in tone and I said, "Well, I guess when I was younger, when I was in college and I was doing fiction writing, I had a lot of very cynical. When I was a teenager and I was writing graphic novels and stuff, they were very cynical. And you had like the stuff that was more, I don't want to say like Hunter S. Thompson-y because it's more trippy. But it's, it was much more like that type of you know, darker view of the world. But I guess I looked at it and as I you know got older, you know, the world has enough terrible awful things in it why not create things that are beautiful because the world has beauty in it too the world has optimism in it the world has positivity in it so why not create these things that have that kind of sense of wonder that echo that while not completely ignoring the fact that there are negative things too but there are also wonderful things as well uh, no, I agree uh, with everything you just said. Um, the first book I did, the in, Saint Nick, in the St. Nick of Time book, that was by design an optimistic. It was a Christmas story. It was, what it is basically is a Santa Claus story for adults. Santa Claus is in the book, um, but it's it's aimed, it was an, an experiment on my part, to write a Santa Claus book for other adults to read. Uh, so that, by nature, that's that's the book I was trying to do. Um, totally. That you know what book you know what that kind of reminded me of? A Christmas story. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I agree, which is one of my favorite movies. You asked about characters. I like those characters, too. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, give me the question again. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the optimism inherent in your work and um, the sense of wonder that's echoed in it. And like I said, like I mentioned, you know, in the Saint Nick of Time, when I read it, it reminded me of Christmas Story, where it had that sense of humor, but it wasn't really dark and awful sense of humor. It was just funny. It was kind of goofy, funny, and it had, you know, it had a, a humor to it, but just more gentle. Um, just the uh, the the tone of the book had that kind of gentle, almost nostalgic feel to it. You know, it's really kind of enveloping and wonderful. And I think a lot of your work does. And I was just wondering where, you know, where that kind of comes from. If that's something overt or it's something you didn't even realize was there and you just kind of look at it now and you go, you know what? Come think of it. Then it's interesting to me you mentioned Charles Schultz because Schultz had that too. That was very much Schultz was an optimistic writer. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know if he was an optimist in his real life, but he definitely was an optimistic writer. In terms of his work. In terms of his work. Um, within the Saint Nick of Time, it was very overt. That's what I'm going for with this book. But now, since I'm sitting here, I'm analyzing myself in my the way I write. I'm thinking about another thing I have, another book I have in progress now, which is sort of a a sad story. But as I think about how I've got it plotted, uh, I'm realizing. I'm moving towards an optimistic ending, even with that book. So I'm thinking maybe it's just something that comes from me. Maybe I am, despite everything that's going on in the world and and uh, you know day-to-day struggles and whatever. Maybe I'm an optimist at the end of the day, and I. But I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing uh, in writing. Um, I don't know if you said earlier in our conversation here before we started recording, but um, there's a lot of heavy, dark. Um, uh, writing out there, a lot of heavy books. They're all good. Uh, I, I read books like that, um, but maybe somewhere in my in my brain, that's not what I want to write. Well, it's almost become a cliche. It's like the po- the poet who, you know, poet slash drunk who wants to be Bukowski. Like how many, you know, I mean that was like when I was in college. Like there, how many people wanted to be Bukowski or wanted to be, you know, um, uh, Chuck Palahniuk, you know, that was the same thing. It's like, you know, they want to have that kind of dark, cynical feel that, you know, I'm a person who has feelings and I'm moody and there's no validity to my worldview unless I am very cynical and negative and dark. And that's not, I mean, I don't know, that's really a cop out. It's really kind of a cliche to me. I've always found that to be, it's like the, the, you know, self-prescribed nihilism of, you know, I'm going to do a, a ton of drugs and drink and be self-destructive and I'm like well really the only th- person you're hurting ultimately is yourself and while those things can be fun in moderation certainly I'm not gonna you know say that I haven't you know had some enjoyable times but taking it to an extreme tends to be overtly self-destructive and it's almost as if it's a prescribed way of keeping people under control or keeping the population under control or keeping people in a state of subservience to something, whether it be an addiction to this or an addiction to that. And when you look at all that negativity and nihilism, it's the same way. You know, you're, you're in service to 
a pessimism that really doesn't serve you well. Uh, and while the, you know it's realistic to acknowledge the fact that there can be negative things that occur, I don't think that it's necessarily productive to dwell upon those things or when there are things that are still up to chance to constantly um, find yourself uh, expecting those things to happen. No, I agree. Um, so I guess uh, what I'm learning today is I'm an unapologetic optimist, <laughs> which I didn't know before I got here tonight. But um, that'll be five cents, William. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I don't know. I I like all kinds of writing. I like all kinds of styles. Um, I think it, any writers listening, just find what works for you. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm gonna try. Maybe you guys should try not to worry too much about how you like to write just get good at writing that way and maybe that's what i'm trying to do so well i always tell people that too when people ask me for advice on writing oh how do i sit down and do this i mean you've written so many books how do you i'm like just sit down and write you know i mean really you have a voice that is only yours no one is ever going to write the things that you are going to even if the barista came over, and you and I are both professional writers. If she came over and said, I want you to write a story about um, the guy who runs uh, Fred and Ethel's, the lady who runs Fred and Ethel's across the street, and you're going to write a story about her starting up her business and how she got started, but put a fantasy spin on it. Now, that's a fairly specific set of instructions, but you and I are going to go about it in different ways because our brains work differently. Our creative processes work differently. It's the same thing with anyone else. Creative people really are not in competition with one another because everything that they do is within the unique parameters of their own creative muse. And so I always tell people that is, you know, write your own story because everyone's got one and write it in your own voice and your own viewpoint because for all I know I'm encouraging my next favorite writer to, to go out and create something fantastic so well and if you don't do that you run into the danger of going too far the other way and trying to copy right. what someone else is doing and no one else is going to be Stephen King or Sean Leary or, or me or you got to be you mm-hmm. if you try to copy somebody else somebody's going to spot it and, and you're going to be uh, discounted for it. Right. So just be you, I guess, is the, is the point. Well, let's talk about your new book. Okay. Tell us about, give us the title of the new book, how it came about, where people can get it, etc., etc. All those great things. Sure. Um, my new book has a very long title. Uh, it's called Misery Banana, Very Short Stories Inspired by Old Games and Odd Thoughts. Uh, what it is, I do a podcast called Atari Bytes. Every week I play, uh, I'm, I'm old, so my first video games were Atari games uh, as a kid. Uh, I liked playing them. Uh, I played them for a long time as a kid, then I put them into storage. Uh, a few years ago I got them out again just to show my kids. And uh, I had started listening to podcasts around the same time, so uh, uh, eventually I got the idea to do a podcast, uh, which I did. It's called Atari Bytes. Every week I play a game, uh, an old Atari game, talk a little bit about the game, uh, and then I present an original short story based on what I supposedly think is really happening in the game. Um, old Atari games, they don't tell you much. Um, they tell you there's a spaceship on the screen and some little pixels that look like aliens, and you have to shoot them. Or, you know, whatever, the game, whatever the game is. You know, Modern video games, they're whole movies, and they got backstories and characters and all that, but Atari games didn't have that. 
Um, you got uh, some flashing things on a screen that they told you was a spider that didn't look anything like a spider. Um, and you just kind of went with it. So I thought, I'm going to make it my job to write a story about what's happening in this game. And really all it is is just a, a, a springboard for me to make up a story about really whatever I want to write about that week. And usually it's hopefully funny. Once in a while, though, something about the game or my mood that week or whatever makes me want to write something more serious. So I've done a ton of episodes of this podcast, uh, and I realized I got... Which you can see, which you can hear on quadcities.com, by the way. Thanks, Sean. (laughs) Uh, We were going to get to that later, but, you know, it's fine. Go ahead. So uh, all of that was was a lead-up to to explain that what this book is, is I took a bunch of those stories and put them in a book. Um, and you can read them. Uh, what I'm trying to tell people, what I'm hoping people, uh, I'm hoping people that don't care about Atari games, maybe don't even care about video games, will to give the book a look because there are stories, there are some stories that are, are you know, space battles, there are stories that are um, uh, tanks and wars and kind of things, but there are also stories about uh, family struggles or about, you know, just being a workaday guy, just going to work or, um, uh, somebody trying to make a better life for themselves. Um, there's all sorts of stuff in this book. And, and uh, I thought, there's something here for people to read, even if they don't care about Atari games. I'm going to put it between the covers of a book and just put it out there and see what happens. So, there it is. Total tangent, but how do you feel about Ready Player One? Speaking of Atari games. Uh, I read the book. I, I did not see the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you have to see, I read the book as well, and I've seen the movie. That's why I was curious as to... Because I, they're, they're different, obviously. You know. They're different. Um, the book was... It, I liked the book fine. Um, it was maybe a little... I, I don't want to tear the book down, because I did like the book fine. Uh, it was maybe a little too clever for its own good if that if a little too much look at all these 80 references 80s references I can come up with that kind of thing um, but having said that I appreciate you know I'm an 80s kid uh, I got the references I, I appreciated that um, but I don't know if I may be wrong I don't know if younger people would would care about it as much as I would people our age and, and older so mm-hmm. yeah which, I don't know, I'm really curious as to how, like, how many people did see. Because the 80s are back in such a big way, style-wise and music-wise. Um, never really read anything about that. I, I just remember seeing the movie and thinking, oh, you know, I liked it. I, I kind of had the same... It was kind of one of those things where it was like, I'm not like, oh my god, I loved it. That was so fantastic. But I liked it. Yeah. I liked both of them. I, I guess the the book was so hyped before I read it. And it's always interesting going into that. It's like, I felt that way with... Like, The Hunger Games, which was fantastic. The Hunger Games was so hyped up, and then I read it, and I was like, oh, my God, this lives up to the hype. It's fantastic. I mean, I thought it was... I thought The Hunger Games were great books. They weren't overly showy literature, but plot-wise, she's just... Suzanne Collins is is just such a propulsive writer. Those books just zoom... Like, they just zoom by. I mean, they just hit you. Boom, 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 boom. And I love the action writing, the propulsive writing that she's got. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Too, I read him. It was I, I was like, eh. I, honestly, I didn't get past like the gigantic genealogy in the first couple chapters. And I'm like, oh Jesus, when is this thing gonna end? Um, and then you know, Fifty Shades of Grey was shit. And um, 
the Twilight books. The first book I thought was okay. Yep. Um, and then they 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 you know had diminishing results. You know after that, I think I, I quit. I read the second one. And I was like, eh. Yeah. And the third one. I got about three quarters of the way through, and I'm like, yeah, I think I'm done with this, you know. Um, but yeah, it's always kind of disappointing when you read something that's mega, mega hyped. I'm trying to think of anything that has been incredibly hyped that I've then read and thought, oh, this is wow, this is just as good. This certainly lives up to all the hype. I mean, even you know, like Cavalier and Clay was like that with me too. I remember when, remember when Cavalier and Clay was so like mega hype, or the Dave Eggers book, the um, I can't remember what the hell the it's like the the first Dave Eggers book. I, I know what you're talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's the one where the him and his his brother and stuff, like yeah. the autobiographical one or the Romanoclef, whatever. Um, and that one I thought was a fantastic book, but I don't know. You get you get, you get disappointed with all you know. Something's incredibly hyped. It's different when you discover something mm-hmm. you're yourself right. and you realize, oh man, this is fantastic. This is such terrific. Like Nick Hornby. Like Hornby was like that when I first started reading Nick Hornby. It was a friend's recommendation rather than a lot of hype. It was a friend who said like, oh my god, you've got to read High Fidelity. This is like you. Like you and about a boy to like your personality to a T. And I read him and I said, yeah, you're exactly right. This was the, this was me when I was a bachelor. Is High Fidelity and about a boy were basically like, that's what I was like when I before I had kids. Or a kid, you know, um, was a parent. Um, are there any books like that you, um, any contemporary books or any contemporary movies, things of that nature, that you think represent you as a person and as a writer well um, or if you were like telling people yeah, which you are essentially in this podcast you're telling people well if you like this then you know you might like me like like my work um, and this is kind of like the personality or the voice of my writing it's kind of like this it- it's a terrible comparison. Um, I'm That's what I'm looking for. Is I'm looking for an absolutely awful comparison here, William. I'll explain why I'm saying it anyway. Uh, Chuck Wendig. Okay. Do you know Chuck Wendig at all? He writes, um, <laughs> I guess they'd be called urban fantasy. Um, uh, really violent uh, books. Um, sort of sometimes sort of supernatural books, um, that kind of thing. Uh, he wrote a couple of Star Wars books too. Um, my books aren't anything like his, but I like him as a as a personality, um, and I like what he in his books. His characters are very true, and and he he presents them in a, a uh, in an honest way, even though they're totally different kind of books from what I write. So as far as I don't think I would I would say if you like what he writes then read mine because they're totally different books, but I'd say if you like what he, what he does and his his um, his devotion to the reader, um, in that sense I would compare it. Um, as far as comparisons to what I write, um, gosh. <sighs> Well, the, the the one that you read, which no one else knows anything about it, but um, I would be lying if I said I didn't have Harry Potter in the back of my mind. I can see that, definitely. I was not writing a Harry Potter book, um, <coughs> but in the sense of sort of a, a, a universe, 
uh, with kids and, and uh, it's sort of an epic journey that people are going to go on. Um, so there's that. As far as like the, the short stories here, um, it's interesting you mentioned Harry Potter and when you had me write it, you had me read it. I said Spielberg, and Harry Potter is really Spielberg is really kind. Of, uh, Harry Potter is very Spielbergian, yes. very much so. Yes, I, no, I agree. Uh, so what we're learning is that I'm I'm Spielbergian today, <laughs> and I'm an optimist. So that, that's not a bad thing. These aren't bad things, William. It's been great for me, Sean. Um, I I don't know. Uh, I'm promoting this book, Misery Banana, which you can buy now in your local bookstore. Um, so I should have been prepared to say, well, here's what you should read. If you read this, you'll like this. I don't have a direct comparison, I guess, mm-hmm. um, other than to say, if you like sci-fi, if you like uh, war stories, if you like uh, family drama, all of that's in this book. That's kind of a cop-out answer. I, I know that, but that's, that's the best answer I have, I guess. So as someone who has reviewed countless Atari games over the years, what are some of your favorite Atari games and why? Uh, Missile Command, no question. That's my favorite. I, I don't know if you know Atari games at all or care, but Missile Command is great. Uh, Miss Pac-Man is great. Um, uh, what, uh, Pitfall, of course, Frogger, Donkey Kong, those are the kind of the iconic ones. Um, those are all great. Uh, Laser Blast, I think, is pretty good. Um, uh, I don't... I, I actually like Atari Boxing, which is a really... It's one of the early ones, and it's it's just a very basic... Uh, you know, kids who are listening to this uh, don't expect a video game from Atari in the 1970s to look like a video game today. But you have to use your imagination a little bit. So, But I really like that one. Uh, stay away from Amadar and... Uh, and uh, uh, what was the other one I didn't like? Uh, I think there's a golf game. Stay away from that. Um, uh, I, I am in no way an expert. There are tons of Atari video, uh, video game podcasts out there by people who have been playing them nonstop for the last 30 years. And they know the games inside and out and how they're made and all that. That's not me. I played them when I was 10 and put them <laughs> away until I was much, much older. Uh, and I don't have a computer background, so I'm just a guy who, who kind of likes to pick up a game. And that's what I do every week. Most weeks when I sit down to record the podcast, uh, lately it's, anymore, it's a game I've never played before. And I don't play it until like a few minutes before I start the show, and it's my immediate reaction. Here's what this game is. Um, but yeah, it, the classics, Frogger, Yars Revenge... Uh, Pitfall, uh, Missile Command, definitely. Uh, those are those are the ones you should get. I would say I would I would dare to say there are a lot more people like you than there are people who have been playing Atari games for thirty years. <laughs> I think your your audience and the people who identify with you are they're going to be much more than uh, than those. Uh, I would have agreed with you a few years ago before I started my podcast, but I quickly discovered that that I may be we mo- both may be wrong about that. Um, there are, uh, and I've met many of them. There are a lot of podcasters out there who who know this stuff inside and out, and a lot of really diehard classic video game. Not just Atari, you know, you have uh, Nintendo and PlayStation and all that, which I don't know as much about. But um, uh, people, 
we're in a world where people love what they love. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's books, maybe it's video games, maybe it's uh, music, and then if it's music, maybe it's uh, CDs, maybe it's uh, uh, vinyl, uh, you know, whatever it is. People love what they love. They they love Queen, uh, but they they hate Cardi B, or and they are very not two are nothing alike, but they have very strong opinions about both. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I'm just a guy who said. I want to write stories. I need a way to do that. Uh, I like Atari games. Um, I'm going to put those together. Make a sandwich out of it. <laughs> the sandwich analogy. So let's talk about what else is on your menu. You've got another podcast as well, which also harkens back to one of your early loves. Uh, yeah, we mentioned Schultz earlier. Um, I really didn't start listening to podcasts as, until like 2015. And I started the other one, the Atari Bytes one. And, and then just as a listener, I was curious to see, are there any podcasts about Schultz and about Peanuts? Peanuts is iconic. Surely there must be a bunch of podcasts about this. And I went looking, and the answer, at least as far as I could tell, is there were none. Um, so I thought, all right, well, maybe I should do one then. If I want to listen to one, I'm going to have to do it myself. So uh, in between the idea and, and creation, uh, another one did pop up. But I started mine. It's called uh, It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown. Once a month, I spend an hour, hour and a half talking about peanuts. Uh, usually, at this point, and I've still got a few more to go, at this point, it's usually talking about one or two of the TV specials. There were dozens of them. Uh, so that's provided a lot of material. But I also spend time talking about the strip, of course. Um, Charles Schultz, kind of what he was like. Uh, I've had authors uh, who've written books about the subject. I've had, uh, last month I had a playwright who wrote a musical, actually, about Schultz, uh, called Sparky. Um, I've had uh, uh, graphic novelists, authors. Um, if it's anything to do with Peanuts, directly or indirectly, I talk about it on the show, just because I think it's interesting, and it wasn't something that people were doing before. Uh, every podcast that talks about popular culture talks about Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, they give an episode to that, but that's about it. But there is tons of other material, uh, a lot of which people know, but maybe haven't thought about for a while, and a lot of stuff that people don't know uh, about Schultz and about Peanuts. And I thought... I'm curious about it. Probably other people are too. So I put it out there once a month. And it's, I don't know if anyone's listening or not, but I'm having fun. So, And we have that on quadcities.com as well. So I, I find it being an interesting podcast. That's one of the things I love about podcasts is that they are. They're, they are. They're, they're distinct. They're individual. They, um, they're antithetical to things that are engineered to have mass appeal. They are geared towards a small and passionate audience. And small, I mean relatively small. And there's, there's something kind of pure about that. In a world where so much of the entertainment business is geared towards finding the widest audience and the largest common denominator, then in doing so you have to water something down so much. There's something that's just really energizing about somebody who is extremely passionate about something that may only be hitting a limited audience, but damn it, all those people in that limited audience aren't freaking passionate about it as well, and that's really kind of cool. Well, we were talking earlier, um, you can reach those people at virtually no cost. 
in the old days, if you wanted to reach a bunch of people, you had to write a book, or you had to get a show on TV. Right. Uh, you had to, you had to convince a bunch of other people to help pay for the thing that you wanted to make, to to share. And now, well, whether it's books, you can do that relatively inexpensively if you want. Right. Uh, and podcasts even cheaper, probably. Oh yeah. We were talking earlier before we got started today. Um, you can spend lots and lots of money to make a podcast, but you don't have to. Right. Uh, we're sitting here tonight with a just a micro recorder and. Right. And that's about it. You can record on your phone. You can record on your phone if you want. Um, and you just you put it on the internet and you, you tell people about it. And that appeals to me um, because uh, how else would I put my thing out there about Schultz? It would just be stuff I'd be saying they're wondering about uh, and not being able to share with people. So uh, uh, I love podcasts. Uh, I love that you can write your own books and put them out there if you want to. Um, it's, it's a really... All the problems in the world right now, and there are many, um, out, outlets for creativity is, is not one of those problems. It's extremely punk rock. It goes right to the heart of the punk rock ethos, the do-it-yourself ethos, which is one of the reasons why I love it. Is, is punk and post-punk are probably two my two favorite music genres, and maybe even post-punk more than punk, because punk became more generic as it, you know, advanced as it evolved. It became more of a template of well, you have to do this, and you have to put your hair in a mohawk, and you know, wear safety pins in your clothes, and you have to do you know sloppy three chord songs and they have to sound a certain way which you know it just became a little easier to copy whereas post-punk was whatever you wanted it to be I mean post-punk was everything from the pop group to Gang of Four to early Human League to you know um, Public Image Limited and all these bands are so very different from one another but the one thing that they had in common was an uncompromising sense of experimentation and individual and the ability with the new technology of the time to record it cheaply and put it out there cheaply. And I think that's one of the cool things about technology nowadays, whether it's podcasting or, you know, just getting online and social media or whatever, is you can do whatever the hell you want to inexpensively and express yourself in a way in which circumvents um, the commoditization and the mass production um, aesthetic of the mainstream. So you can do whatever the hell you want. And that's really kind of cool. Um, what other ideas do you have for podcasts? What, are there any any other ideas that you're kind of floating around or you're thinking about doing something different and um, um, putting out there? Well, and I guess this kind of goes back to the que- you were asking me questions earlier about uh, characters that I respond to and and creative things that I that I react to and that I think I probably probably influence my work. Um, among my nerddom, uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. Well, me too, me too. Did you see? Um, were you at uh, the theater in Davenport? For they showed um, yes yes Legopolis. Uh, I thought about going, but I just it, it didn't work out. So I took my son there, and I'm like, uh, he loved it. Yeah, I mean, because I've showed him the old Doctor Who episodes and stuff and everything, and he was like, that was really cool. So it was awesome to share that with him. I tried to get my kids into the old Doctor Who. Uh, they're not as crazy about it. the new Doctor Who. Uh, they're a little bit more into it, but not so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started doing podcasts, hosting them, my original idea was to do a Doctor Who podcast. I think we talked about this, and I told you we did, because I remember telling you when you do it, we'll be more than happy to put it on quadcities.com. So. Yeah. Um, my worry, though, was that 
and this was sort of a selfish uh, production problem worries that Doctor Who is a current huge thing um, I was worried about being able to keep up with we uh, keep up with what's going on in Doctor Who world to a level that would would satisfy me. Mm-hmm. So I put that aside. But if if I had the time and if I could do it, uh, I would do a Doctor Who podcast. Um, I still would like to do which the original idea for Atari Bytes wasn't a video game podcast at all. It was some sort of writing podcast. But I never quite figured out how to do it. I would like to come up with a a some sort of a purely writing podcast. I don't know what that would be. Have you seen the Masterclass stuff that's out there? Yeah. I'm thinking about getting that. It's 190 bucks for all the Masterclasses, and Neil Gaiman is one of them. Neil Gaiman, um, uh, Dan Brown, uh, Margaret Atwood, yeah, Steve Martin, and, and you can get li- unlimited access to all of them for like under 200 bucks. So I'm looking at them like, hell, I'd pay that for Neil Gaiman for crying out loud, you know? Alone, I, I would be happy with that. So yeah, so I, would, I don't know what it would be, but I would like to do something like that. Um, yeah, I, I like having options. Going back to that whole, you can do anything you want, whatever interests you. Um, those are the kinds of things I enjoy. Uh, I know other people enjoy it. Uh, I would like to share those kinds of things if I had the time and, and a good idea. So. For, the, for those of you listening to the background noise, it's it's human sacrifice night here at the, at Cool Beans. It's not a reaction to this conversation, right. honestly. Yeah, yeah. Right. She's yeah. She's she's really not happy about what you got to say here, William. Um, it's not the first time I've had that reaction. So. <laughs> right. She really does not like the idea of you doing a Doctor Who podcast. There's always um, a critic out there. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Um, but. So, what else would you like to talk about in terms of your creative output? We've talked about your podcast. We've talked about your books. Um, what else you got? Go- what else you got going on? What are you looking forward to in the future? Uh, well, I've always got other books that I'm working on. Um, I uh, just going to keep doing the podcasts. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see what comes. I guess. Um, yeah, I did these books myself. I'm sure I'll do more. With this one, the new one, I had to learn how to use Photoshop. and I did it all. I did the cover. I did everything, which I had not done before. And I, I like that process. I want to continue learning more about the production side of books. Uh, but honestly, someday you know, I'm hoping to, to go mainstream, too, and, and maybe do something traditionally published and explore what that's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not exclusively, but I would like to have that experience as well. Um, I guess the the short answer is I just want to you know live life, man. Just do it all. So, yeah. Tell people where they can find your books. Where's your website? Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Give people the info on where they need to go to find out more about William Pepper. Uh, you can order the book uh, really anywhere you want to order it. It's not unfortunately at this point it's not really on bookstore shelves, but you can order it from anybody you want to order it from. Um, I, uh, you can tweet at me at Carnival of Glee. I don't have a cent- I should have, but I do not have a centralized website yet. That's probably coming. Um, but you know, you check out the AtariBytes.Lipson.com that has uh, show information about Atari Bytes or CharlieBrownPodcast.Lipson.com for the other show. Uh, and I promise someday, before the year is out, I will have a, a central website uh, with all of everything about me and all my all this stuff that I do. Uh, in one place. Cool, cool. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show, William. Thank you for having me. Once again, William Pepper, local author. You can check out his new book, Misery Banana. Um, 
You can order it at uh, bookstores anywhere. Go online. It's at Amazon. Amazon. Am- Barnes & Noble, uh, Indie, IndieBound, uh, Powell Books. You name it, it's probably there. There you go. Misery Banana by William Pepper, our latest guest on QC Uncut, your spot for uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Sean Leary. Hope you have a great day.